Great. <laughs> ah, absolutely not. <laughs> not now. Um, so, uh, welcome online. Uh, so when we're talking through structure, we've talked context structure, simply how it's laid out, what it tries to communicate in how it is laid out. So in trying to understand a structure or flow, the Gospel of Mark, the first thing to do is to grasp that no singular structure or breakdown, there is no singular one uh, that is conclusive because ancient storytelling, like a complex tapestry, has multiple dimensions. So there are lots of different ways to break it down. I'm offering one today that I think is quite helpful. Um, we have to understand that both narrative form and literary content both have something to say about the structure of the Gospel of Mark. So when I say that, it's just a fancy way of saying what Mark is saying and how he chooses to say it has a lot to that kind of behind the scenes stuff, what he's, what he's saying and how he goes about saying it, um, how he arranges and forms the statement, um, have a lot to do with how this book is structured and how we go about understanding it. Um, so following Ched Myers, he was, uh, he's a New Testament professor and scholar, and he's very good, especially with, um, with gospel stuff. Uh, the parts of the literary structure that we'll be following, and this may seem incredibly rudimentary, but it is necessary to kind of lay out sentences, just short statements, episodes, a kind of combination of short statements that are from sentences, minor sequences, a couple of episodes together, major sequences, several minor sequences together, and the over our overall architectural pattern, which is sort of the genre of Mark as a gospel slash Mark as a portrait of Jesus Christ, right? Different than the other other gospels, different than the other synoptics. We talked about that last week with our who uses what, what came first kind of stuff. Um, but that over our overall architectural pattern. Um, so uh, components. Oh, I already went through this. Okay, great. Hey, didn't even need that. Um, uh, but um, so here's our example. So in Mark 8, 22 through 26, it is part of a minor sequence. It's the healing at Bethsaida. Uh, it's a part of a minor sequence of healing episodes. So that's several healing episodes at the right at the beginning of chapter 8 that kind of moves through toward the end, toward the passion narrative, um, focused on spiritual deafness and blindness. So it's both physical and spiritual deafness and blindness, and this kind of comes in while those are going off. It's also the front end bracket of the major sequence. It's uh, what Ched Myers calls the discipleship catechism, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes, um, that pairs with 10, 46 through 52. So those are our brackets. And both of those are healing stories about blindness and deafness, um, but those also have to do with the discipleship catechism. It also is the narrative bridge between the first half of the book and the second, contributing to this overall architectural pattern and structure. Um, and so this is how they're not only one thing, like Mark 8.22 is several sentences, one episode, part of a minor sequence, part of a major sequence, and the narrative bridge. And so it functions in a lot of different ways. Um, and so when we're talking about, okay, so I did put the discipleship catechism on here, thank God. So uh, Ched Myers talks about the discipleship catechism as Catechism meaning, what? Does anyone know what a catechism is? It is, yes, go for it. It's like a 
mentioned that the young Catholics have to go through? It is. Uh, so it they Catholics do kind of own the word. Um, but it is a, an old, old, old Christian term. Um, so uh, catechism, catechesis, um, it is just instructional. And so when he, when Ched Myers uses the term discipleship catechism to talk about these verses, he's talking about here is Jesus teaching what it is to be a disciple. So this is a catechism, a learning, a teaching structure that is how do you follow the way of Christ? How do you become a disciple? This is what these are all about. Um, so it is, uh, that's a major episode. It's a few of the minor episodes grouped together. We see three events, right, with four recurring devices used around the central theme of discipleship. So in each of these three events, we see a portent in which Jesus um, declares he's going to die, followed by the disciples' blindness, where they're like, what does that mean? We don't understand. Uh, even though he's being clear. And ensuing instructions, so teaching, that's the catechesis, the catechism, that center on a paradox. So we see portent, blindness, instruction slash teaching, and a paradox. And so that is kind of contributing to why these are all grouped together into what Shed Myers is calling the discipleship catechism. Um, and here's what that kind of looks like. Oh, so they'll, oh, uh, that's right. So each of these, while using those four devices, of uh, portent, uh, blindness, uh, instruction, and paradox will address the issues of status and power that are social, economic, and political in nature. So then we're kind of back to this anti-polemic against Rome, right? Uh, so here is what that ends up looking like. So in the Discipleship Catechism, we see site portents. So these are all happening at different places. So in Caesarea to Philippi, Jesus predicts his own death. They're like, we don't understand. He teaches about it, and what's the paradox that he teaches about? Those who wish to save their life must lose it. Then, immediately after, Galilee to Judea. They're on the road again. Site portent, he predicts his death. They are confused about it. He teaches about it, and what does he teach about? The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And then following it up at the end of the discipleship catechism, on the way to Jerusalem. So this is leading right into his death. So this is what makes it so interesting because the book of Mark is going to continue on right in after this into the passion narrative. And so we've got this, how do you follow Jesus? He tells you how. <laughs> he tells you he's going to die. Very confused by it. He tells us more. And then the greatest in the kingdom must be the least. And every one of the teachings about this catechesis, this discipleship, is centered on the paradox of losing life to save it, last shall be first, and the least shall be the greatest. And so that is this disciple, what does discipleship look like in the kingdom of God? Utter paradox at every turn. And that's kind of this, how Mark structures this uh, in these three things, one recurring right after the other, does give us a glimpse into what he does think discipleship in the kingdom of God looks like. And so this is why structure matters so much, because otherwise these are just three stories that maybe have something in common, but when we kind of zoom out and we put them all together, we do recognize that Mark is making an enormous claim here. These, these are not just three non-connected, just episodic things. This is his entire, 
this is this sort of sits right at the center of the book as what does it mean to follow Jesus? This is what it means. Does that make sense? And this is one of the things I love about structuring stuff because it's really quite brilliant. So that was just sort of our example of why structure matters, why it's an important thing to focus on. Uh, but the Gospel of Mark, as the, the structure that I see uh, as helpful, um, it roughly breaks down into two parts that very roughly mirror one another um, in an almost cyclical reading, and I'll explain that in a second. The first half of the book takes place mainly in and around Galilee, with Capernaum and the Sea of, sea of Galilee representing the gravitational center of the narrative world, while the second half deals with Jesus' journey to Jerusalem and the consequences um, of his teaching and the cost of discipleship. So I forgot to put in, y'all forgive me, I, I got in from D.C. last night after midnight, and I meant to put a lot of stuff on this, but I have been gone most of the week. So um, I'm going to draw out a very rough map of Israel real quick so that we can see where the first half of the book and the second half of the book take place. So we've got Israel, sort of, stay with me. Um, we have the Sea of Galilee, right? We have, um, this is kind of the Galilean region right here. And Capernaum is roughly here. Jerusalem is here, right? So the first half of the book takes place here. And then there's a traveling down to Jerusalem, where the second half of the book takes place there. Is that good? Okay, great. <laughs> Very rough. Do not, uh, not admissible in court. Thank you so much. I, uh, so that's kind of how the book is laid out, top to bottom, first to second. And one of the things that we're going to see is the first half is way nicer than the second half. The first half of the book is lots of success. Lots and lots of success. The second half of the book is not. Uh, it is what does it look like to fail in actually succeeding, right? That's that paradox that Mark really, really builds into the structure of the book. So uh, N.T. Wright argues that the first half of the gospel is about presenting Jesus as the powerful son of God. And this is where he's being very successful in his ministry. People are following him. People love what he's saying. And the second half of the gospel is presenting him as the suffering servant, the son of man. This is supported through the use of the Old Testament references and the anti-imperial stance that Mark takes against the Roman Empire and lots of the titles that were attributed and claimed by Caesar, son of man. Um, the, there's a point in Mark when Jesus says, whose face is on this coin? And there is a deep understanding that... Uh, whose face is stamped on you, it's God's. So when it's rendered to Caesar, what is Caesar's? It's Caesar's face, give it to him. But you're God's. That has to be the way it is. And so it's Jesus claiming all of these imperial titles and privileges that are his alone as the Son of Man, as the Messiah. And because of this, we'll see that Jesus was never killed because he was doing good things. Jesus was killed because he claimed divinity. He claimed to be uh, God, and he claimed titles that were Caesar's alone. There's, there's a thought in some places that Jesus was killed because he was like feeding the poor and stuff. No, lots of people were doing that. Jesus was killed because he claimed to be the Messiah. 
and that was a threat to power, which we talked a bunch about last week, that this was entirely about a threat to power. So, well, all that he was doing, yeah. I mean, everything he did upset the structure. It he, did, yeah. He, he threatened the structure. I, I agree totally with yeah. what you're saying, but I'm just saying that, you know, when he acknowledged children, yes. That was yes, 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 yes. So yeah. He was just going around upsetting everyone. He was. And it was, <laughs> it was. And so this kindness that he was showing to the least of these was a threat to power, and that upset people. But what got him killed was the fact that he did that while claiming divinity, while not stopping people from calling him the Messiah. Right. At all. Like, yeah. If you don't whack that mole, that's <laughs> Well, that's the thing. To claim divinity is actually a political claim. To claim that you are the Messiah, to, to not stop people from calling you the Messiah, is not separate from a political claim at all. It is itself inherently political because it's a threat to the power structures. So, great conversation. I'm loving this. Um, First half, we have a prologue call to discipleship. That's, we see this morning's gospel right there. Um, first campaign of challenge. This is Ched Meyer's language, uh, campaign of challenge. He's in Capernaum. This is where we see uh, a prophet cannot go to his hometown. So he leaves and goes around to the regions in the Galilee. Uh, first sermon, lots of parables. Uh, first campaign of affirmation. This is where he sees a lot of success. And then the symbolic epilogue. And that's where we start to see the beginning of this kind of like the end of the first half of the book. And then second half of the book, second prologue call to discipleship. Confessional crisis is what uh, um, Chad Myers calls it, uh, as well as this being, this right here kind of squares off our discipleship catechism. So the second call to discipleship is, or the second prologue, is the call not of Jesus into his ministry, but us into Jesus's ministry, and the disciples into that ministry as well. So second campaign of affirmation, things were okay. Second campaign of challenge, Jerusalem temple. This is the cleansing of the temple. This is, woo, this is bad. This is where things get really, really rough. Second sermon, what would you say? It is, it really is. And then not only that, so this, this section ends with the cleansing of the Jerusalem temple. The next section begins with him saying, in three days, the temple will be torn down. <laughs> so not only is it like, oh, how dare you do this, but an apocalyptic challenge <laughs> unto not only, the, uh, not only the money changers, not only the economic structures, but the religious and political ones as well. In every facet of life, Jesus was turning everything upside down, and it upset everyone. Uh, and so because of that, because of both the cleansing of the temple and the apocalyptic sermon, uh, we have the arrest and execution of Jesus, which is the passion narrative. Um, and then we have the symbolic epilogue. Now, is that a Bible or is that a prayer book? Does anyone have a Bible on them? Okay, yes, go ahead. Um, can you pull up Mark 16 and um, tell me what you see uh, when you get to verse 8. 
Mark 16. Mark 16, and when we get to verse 8. You're good. It's a real shot in the dark because I'm pretty sure this is in all Bibles, but if not, then this is useless. <laughs> but yeah, re- go ahead and read verse eight. So they went out and fled from the tombs, for fear and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Yes, right. Now, what comes after that? Is anything? And is it in brackets? Uh-huh. Yes. So that's, we're okay to not read that. So it ends because it goes on to, I think, verse 16. So that's another five and we're okay. Um, because that suddenly becomes the third half of the gospel, the resurrection account. The gospel of Mark does not end with resurrection. Because, well, why? Um, I call this the third half because in the earliest documents that we have, the Gospel of Mark does not end with a resurrection account. It simply ends with them fleeing the tomb because they're afraid. So, let's talk about that. There is almost no doubt at all that Mark, that the earliest manuscripts of Mark end without a resurrection account and do end with verse 16:8, which is them fleeing from the tomb terrified. The longer version of 16.8 in some places uh, and the whole of 16.9 through 20 was almost certainly a later scribal edition. So what does that mean? A, it means that um, a scribe later came along and did add this longer ending to Mark. But in our earliest manuscripts, almost no chance that, uh, that the resurrection account happened. Right now in our Bibles, you will see um, in every Bible that you pick up, Mark is going to end with 16.8, and then there'll either be a heading that says the longer ending, or it'll just be in brackets, verses 9 through 20, which is itself a resurrection account. Um, and when an editor came along, yes. uh, an editor came along and squared it with Matthew, Luke, and John, right? And so this, now, right? The, uh, this was pre-Nicaea. So first century manuscripts, nothing. Second century, this is in there. So this is within the time frame of the rest of the Bible being completed. But the earliest manuscripts we have, um, absolutely uh, not there. But it seems to have been entered permanently into the first half of the second century, right? So this is pre-Nicaea, um, as an attempt to bridge the gap in Mark's story using the other Gospels and Acts. So did Mark intend to leave it at the crucifixion? with the reader in fear and trembling like the women at the empty tomb, confronting the reader with the challenge of faith, as uh, Ched Myers calls it. And the short answer is maybe. Like, we don't actually know. Mark absolutely does set up his readers to expect a resurrection, just as he sets them up to expect the crucifixion. So one of the things we're going to talk about next week is what some interpreters do call the messianic secret or the Markan messianic secret which is constantly Jesus telling people, don't tell anyone I did this, don't tell anyone I did this, don't tell anyone I did this. And Mark sort of trusting his readers in some big ways to understand what is coming. So just as he sets them up to expect the crucifixion all over Mark, the portents of his death, right? Jesus constantly saying that. He also sets them up to expect the resurrection. That's all over Mark. 
Um, and so just because he doesn't write it doesn't mean he didn't think it happened. There was an expectation all over Mark that this was going to happen. Yes? Um, we don't have anything else from Mark. Um, this was the one thing that he wrote, which is great. Uh, but, uh, he likely died. He probably finished this before he died. Um, but in terms of why he did what he did, couple reasons. Um, I do think that it was to challenge the reader with this challenge of faith. Like, okay, what are you going to do with an empty tomb? Because Mark did end with an empty tomb, but there were no resurrection appearances like in the other Gospels. So what do we do with that? Did Jesus rise? Did someone steal him? Did, as uh, one modern interpreter thinks, dog came, dogs came and stole the body away? No. Uh, because Mark sets us up time and again to expect the literal resurrection. So this is a challenge of faith, right? We don't know. But Mark expects us to have, at the very least, the ability to enter into the mystery because of the the messianic secret, the mystery of all of this stuff, because Mark is shrouded in mystery in a lot of ways. And the reader does get to peek behind the curtain in a ton of places, but the resurrection account in the earliest manuscripts is not one of them. So is it possible that our earliest manuscripts did contain a resurrection ending that got lost to time? It's entirely possible. Uh, Mark was the least well-known gospel among early Christians, uh, and we have the fewest manuscripts of original Markan writings. Um, so it's totally possible that, truly, I don't remember if I put this on here, but yeah, okay. It was likely written on a scroll, right? Or a codex. Um, and it is very normal that the end and often the beginning, because think about how Mark begins. We were in, in, the, in church this morning. Mark begins straight away with John the Baptist. There is no birth narrative. There is no genealogy. We just jump right in. And in John, that happens in chapter 3. In Matthew, I think it's 4. Luke, it's definitely 3 or 4. But in Mark, we jump right into it. And so there's a chance that we lost the beginning and the end of a scroll. Entirely possible. I don't know. Uh, papyrus or sometimes skin. Sometimes they, I mean, at that point, we were using other stuff as well. But yeah, it was likely written on a scroll. And it's very normal that the end and often the beginning would be lost to time. Gospel of Mark has no birth narrative, missing beginning, missing end, totally possible. So there's lots of reasons that this could happen, that we don't have a resurrection account, and especially paired with the missing birth narrative. Uh, sure, yeah. Um, so lots of reasons for that. People have um, seen this as a huge challenge to faith because it's like, oh my gosh, our earliest gospel has no resurrection. This is a fiction. Not necessarily. Like, there are plenty of reasons that Mark would have done this. There are plenty of entirely plausible reasons why we wouldn't have this at all. <laughs> and he's still not done. Um, so that is, I think that's actually everything I have for structure, which I'm grateful that we, oh my God, and we're done early. So any questions about structure of Mark, resurrection stuff, discipleship catechism, because most of this, the structure of Mark is, I like to say it's broken down into three halves because now we have a resurrection account from second century manuscripts, which are still very reliable, but the earliest ones just simply don't. So any questions on that? 
Okay, well, great. Next week, we are getting into themes of Mark. We'll be talking about agency, authority, power, um, and uh, a little bit of uh, gender relations stuff. So, sound exciting to everybody? <laughs> okay. Okay, thank y'all so much. Y'all are the best. <laughs> Left side of the sink, folks.